Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you have trouble jointing and edge joining long boards? Have you ever wondered how to make curve moldings by hand? Do you think you might want to start up a small side business related to woodworking? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 36 of the show for October 10th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank our new patron. Thanks to Matthew Pasco for signing up to support the show. And thank you to all of our patrons for your continued support. Your support helps to keep the show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So not too much going on in my shop recently, uh, and in fact, there probably won't be for quite some time. Uh, I've been focusing primarily on trying to get work done on the cabin and get the uh, the final uh, the final bit of work done on the exterior to get everything sealed up before the cold weather comes so uh, we are we are fighting the weather trying to get that done because uh, the uh, the cold weather's moving in and we've been having a lot of rain here lately which has been keeping us from getting the work done on the outside so every uh, non rainy day we have that's that's what we're basically spending our time doing. Uh, and that's probably going to be uh, what goes on for the next few months, at least. Uh, that and, uh, you know, activities for the kids uh, that are starting. The girls are playing hockey this year. So, and hockey season's starting. So, uh, it's going to be weekends will be busy and weekdays will be busy. So, don't expect to see, uh, other than a, than this podcast, don't expect to see a, a lot of activity coming uh, coming out of my shop in terms of woodworking. Probably won't be uh, too many blog posts or too many videos uh, in the in the coming months. Uh, mostly just going to be the uh, the podcast every uh, every two weeks, and uh, that's about all I'm going to have time for at least until we uh, we get this cabin done. So. Uh, you might see the blog and the YouTube channel becoming a little bit more active after the new year. Um, but for right now, uh, the podcast is probably going to be uh, be about it for a little while. So let's get into our listener questions for this week. Our first one comes from Dave Chalice, and he says, I had a couple questions related to prepping large boards by hand. As the next project I've got planned are some seven-foot-tall bookshelves. First, any advice on jointing boards of this length to glue up to make wider panels? I found that boards of this length often have some slight bow along their length, making it hard to line up the edges exactly for the glue-ups. Also, I've been finding it hard to get the edges to be dead flat along the length of the board. Since it's many times longer than my longest plane, I always end up with some high or low spots, and I keep creating more somewhere else when I go to take those out. Second, what would your ideal setup be for preparing boards like that by hand in terms of hand planes? I've mostly worked with much smaller pieces, so I've been just using a scrub plane, a number five jack, and a number four smoother, but wondering what would be better for dealing with longer and wider boards. 
I have some budget for new hand planes, so I'm looking to invest in anything to make the stock prep process faster or easier. But powered joiners and planers are out of the question due to space constraints. So Dave, I have two words for you. Jointer plane. Um, you know, a, a lot of uh, folks can get by with, uh, with just a jack and a smoother um, for a lot of work that they do. But if you're going to do work all by hand or primarily by hand, you don't have a powered joiner and you need to work with boards that are, you know, longer than two to three feet long, um, I, I'm going to stretch, go out on a limb and say you need a joiner plane. It's not an optional it's not an optional tool for working with, with longer boards. Um, you really do need a joiner plane. Um, you can do it with a jack plane and a straight edge, but you're really in for a round of chasing your tail when you start to get into longer boards, especially boards the size you're talking about at, at seven feet long. The, the joiner plane's job is to make things straight. Um, and that's why it's, you know, typically almost twice as long even as a jack plane. Um, and in older planes, you can get them all the way up to, you know, 36 inches long. Um, joiner planes came in a lot of different lengths. And the longer the stock you're working with, the longer the plane you want to do the job. Typically, a plane can... Um, can do a good job of straightening the edge of a board that is about two to two and a half times the length of the plane. So if your longest plane is a 14 inch jack plane, two and a half inch, two and a half times the length of that 14 inch jack plane uh, is roughly three feet long, which is why when you start to get over three feet long, you're kind of finding that you're having some difficulty uh, straightening those boards. Uh, a joiner plane, on the other hand, something like a number eight, you're looking at a two foot long plane. Well, two and a half times two and a half feet, uh, it, you know, is roughly five feet long. So you're, you're starting to get longer boards. The longer plane is going to help you out. Um, in your case, you know, you're, you're working with a seven foot board, so you are still going to have to pay attention. Um, the, the longest boards that I've ever jointed uh, for a wide panel glue up were eight feet long, and that was for some built-ins that I built um, back in our old house in New Jersey. And I used a 30-inch long wooden joiner plane for those uh, because it was the longest plane that I have, and it did the job wonderfully. So I would definitely say get yourself a joiner plane. Um, you know, you, you say you have some room in the budget for some new hand planes. I would look into picking up a, a number eight, whether you buy new or used, you know, antique Stanley or whatever, really doesn't matter. But look for the longest plane that you can get. If you want metal, definitely look for something in a number eight size. Uh, if you want a wooden plane, Look for something longer than 24 inches if you can get it. You can usually um, pretty easily find planes that are 26 inches long, uh, even 28 or 30 inches long pretty easily. Stanley also made transitional planes that can commonly be found in 30 inches long. I had one of those years ago as well before I found my 30 inch long Woody. Um, so, you know, definitely look into that. You can even take a transitional and make a new sole for it as long as you want. You want to put a 36-inch sole on a transitional plane? Go for it. 
Um, but the longer soul is going to help you to joint these boards. Um, and since you said you, you've got budget for some new hand planes, I would say definitely get yourself a joiner plane because that is going to make your job a ton easier than what you're finding out with your jack plane. The other thing I like to do when I straighten the edge of boards is to start with a hollow. So check that board with a nice long straight edge, something about three feet, three to four feet if, you, if you've got it. Um, check the edge of the board. It should be evenly hollow. You want a nice concave edge to start with. If you don't have a nice concave edge to start with, use your planes to make the edge concave. The benefit of that is with the nice long joiner plane, you're only going to be cutting the high spots. So you'll start by cutting the two ends when you're, when you're working with a concave edge. And the area that you're planing on each edge will get longer and longer and longer until you have a single unbroken shaving from end to end. And that's when you stop. That's when you know your edge will be nice and straight. Uh, so if you're having trouble, you know, with hollow, with hollows in the edge, um, make sure you plane the entire edge hollow first so that you have a nice, even concave shape to that edge before you, you start straightening it. Then once you have a nice concave edge, then go ahead and straighten it. And I think you'll find you'll have a much easier time of the job. Hi, Bob. Mark from Australia. I'm hoping you can help me with a great mystery that needs solving, or at least for me it does. I've attached a couple of photos of the things I'm talking about which will help to explain but basically I'm wondering how on earth in the old days with hand tools alone they were able to do mouldings around curved edges straightforward when you're doing just a straight uh, strip of, of moulding or cock beading with a moulding plane but how would you do the moulding around a curved edge so the two examples I'm thinking of one is the I think it's called a gooseneck moulding on the top of a grandfather clock that follows a, an S-bend. And the other one is a little bit different, but my wife has actually asked me if I could make a small wine tasting table, I think it's called, in the old days. And it's basically a table, a round table with a lip on it. And I'm not sure how on earth you would cut that lip on the edge of a, of a round uh, table like a tray. So anyway, if you can help me out, that would be greatly appreciated. And thank you very much for your continued commitment to your show and sharing your craft with all of us. And we get a lot out of it and keep up the great work and stay sharp. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, Mark, you want to make some, some curved mouldings. Um, so your your first... Assumption was correct. That first picture that you sent me um, was indeed would indeed be called a gooseneck molding. Um, and for for anyone who's not aware, uh, a gooseneck molding is essentially like an S-shaped molding. Um, you will find it on top of some tall case clocks. Uh, probably the most common place we tend to see it is on the top of a period um, high boy or desk and bookcase or secretary, whatever you want to call it. Um, where you have this this S-shaped bonnet top or, or, or big cornice that uh, extends up from the top of the upper case. And that S-shaped uh, appearance, that S-shaped molding profile is called a gooseneck molding. So 
Those moldings, uh, I, I hate to break it to you, there was really no special tool or special technique involved in creating those by hand. They're simply carved. Um, what you would normally do would be to rough out the, the profile. So you would shape the, um, the S shape of that molding in your flat stock first. Lay out your curvature, your, your molding profile on the end grain like you would do for a straight molding. And then get yourself some carbon gouges and start hogging away the material. Um, one thing you would typically do, you would probably want to do, is to create a custom scraper in the profile of that molding. And that custom scraper is going to do two things. One, it's going to act as a, a gauge for your pattern. So um, you can use the scraper to actually trace the pattern on the end grain of the molding stock. In addition, you can use it to scrape and clean up the uh, the molding pattern. So if you've ever used a scratch stock, it's you know it's very similar, except this would not be um, in a scratch stock body itself. It would just be a scraper that is cut and filed to the profile of that molding, to the negative profile, I should say, of the molding. And you you waste away as much material as you can by carving with gouges and chisels, and then you use that scraper a to check to see how close you are to the profile and where it needs adjustment. And then B, you would use it as a scraper to clean up that profile and, uh, and finish, finish the, uh, the molding after you've done as much work as you can with your carving gouges. Um, it is a highly skilled type of, of molding to create. I'm not going to kid you. Um, and that's why these pieces were the epitome of high style in the 18th century and why they cost a bloody fortune. Um, even for, to buy at that period, not, not to mention today. So, um, they are, you know, it, it's not for the faint of heart to create a gooseneck molding completely by hand. Uh, I'll put it to you that way, but you can certainly do it. It's been done. Uh, it was done for, you know, a hundred years before. So, um, the second thing, the second piece of furniture that you showed me that you sent a picture of, um, I would call a, a round tea table or a tripod table. It's a, you know, your typical, three-footed um, Chippendale-style tea table with a round top. Um, pedestal base with, you know, three cabriole legs dovetailed into, into that pedestal base. Um, there's two ways. Well, I should, shouldn't say there's two ways. There's really one way that most of these were done if it's a round top, um, and that is they were turned, typically. Um, the top itself would have been mounted outboard on a lathe, there would have been a tool rest that was freestanding um, and not actually attached to the lathe bed itself. Um, and that tabletop would have actually been turned. So yeah, even, you know, a big 36 inch uh, wide top would have been turned. It would have been rough shaped uh, with saws to get the, the round shape and then put on the lathe and turned to get the final uh, shape. And the turning would also serve to dish the tabletop and leave the molding around the edge because the challenge with those tabletops is you're molding through um, straight grain and end grain so typically they were turned um, there's actually a really good article if you have access to the fine woodworking archives uh, online um, i don't anymore but i i did years ago and i i have an article on um, turning and carving a pie crust table. And I don't remember who the author was, but if you go to the fine 
woodworking website and you do a search for turning and carving a pie crust tabletop or, or something along those lines, the article should come up. Because, you know, if it's just a round table, it was typically turned. And that would have been the end of it. Once the turning was done, your tabletop was dished. You had the molding profile around the edge, the, you know, the lip, everything. And the center would have been recessed from the bottom, uh, from the top, sorry. And that would have given you your entire, entire tabletop profile um, in your single wide thick plank. And the whole thing would have been made from a, a single piece of wood. But if it was done, if it wasn't just round, if it had some scroll work, um, in the edges, which would, was often referred to as a pie crust table, uh, you'll see a lot more detail than just a single turn table. So these were turned first and then they were carved after they were turned. So, um, again, another, you know, um, another masterpiece by, you know, very highly skilled workers of the time, um, in order to, to make tables, tabletops like that. So, um, but certainly no reason that we can't do the same today. Um, if you have a power lathe big enough and heavy enough, um, that can turn and that has the capability of turning outboard. You can certainly turn your headstock around, um, mount your large tabletop on a, um, you know, on a faceplate, get by or, or, or make yourself a freestanding uh, tool rest and turn that tabletop just like it used to be done. Or, you know, if you, you can make yourself a, uh, uh, a treadle lathe or spring pole lathe where you can turn outboard might be a bit of a challenge, but, um, you know, certainly an option. Um, and, and that's probably going to be the easiest way to do it is to turn it. If you don't have the ability to do that, um, I would say you're in for a bit more work. You can certainly, um, shape a round top by hand to do the, the dishing in the center and the, the molding around the outside. Um, you would probably have to rig up some type of extended fence uh, or or base for a router plane, um, and I would say you know you, you want to try and lower the center with the router plane as much as you can, and it's going to be slow going. It's going to take some time. Um, maybe start by um, chiseling or carving um, a border around the outside edge or scratching it in with a scratch stock. That'll give you that starting point. And then with a, a really long board, you know, drill a hole through a really long board that you can uh, mount your router plane to that can span the outer edges um, of that table and use that to help dish your tabletop if you want to do it from a single board like that. Um, and then you can, you know, scrape in like a scratch stock style, um, scrape in the molding around the outside edges. Uh, it's going to be quite a bit more work than it would be to turn it. Uh, but if you're looking for the uh, historical method, historical method would be to turn it. Um, and if you don't have the option to do that, then you're, you're really looking at carving, uh, I, th I think. So our third question comes from Ed Zavinsky. Ed says, looking at your new pine workbench on Instagram got me thinking about a stash of white pine that I have from a tree that was cut down from our yard and milled up several years ago. I got the Will Myers DVD on making a portable Moravian bench and wondered how I might use the four quarter and eight quarter boards that I have in the build. I know you're not a fan of laminating bench tops, but I don't think the eight quarter boards are thick enough for a top. I suppose I could laminate them for leg stock and then see if I could find a 12 quarter beam or mantle that was around 13 to 15 inches wide for the top. 
Just wondering what you think. I hate to go out and buy more lumber when I have more pine than I know what to do with, but I don't want to wind up with a substandard workbench either. So um, there's a lot of, of options that you can, you can use here. Um, if you're not opposed to laminating the faces of those boards, um, you can take an eight quarter board and a four quarter board um, and laminate them face to face and essentially make a 12 quarter board. Um, and that should be plenty thick enough for your workbench top. Um, if the, the Moravian style is the one that you want to go with. Um, eight quarter, in my opinion, is plenty thick enough if you're going to do a, an English style bench because you're going to have some extra support under there. Um, and you can just drill your your dog holes or your, your hold fast holes in an area that it also drills through the um, the support beams that are underneath the top, and that'll give you plenty of thickness for your holdfasts. But for the Moravian style, um, you know, it's very similar to the the Rubo and the Scandinavian style benches, where you know you do have a a very thick top. Um, you know, you probably want something that's at least twelve quarter. So you can certainly face glue um, a, a four quarter board to an eight quarter board. Um, and and wind up with a board that's about 12 quarter. Um, you're going to need some serious clamps in order to do that. One option would be to, if you're going to, let's say, put the, the four quarter board on the bottom, um, you know, plane both of those boards nice and flat as you can, uh, spread your glue, put the four quarter board on top of the eight quarter board and drive screws, lots of, of drywall or deck screws through the four quarter board into the bottom of the eight quarter board. And that would act as temporary clamps. Once the glue dried, you can pull all the screws out and the screw holes would then be on the bottom side of the bench where you really wouldn't see them. Um, so that's one option. Um, if you don't have a whole lot of clamps is just to drive tons of screws through uh, to act as temporary clamps. Um, and you can wind up with a, a perfectly functional bench top that way. So that would probably be um, my choice. If I had wide, um, wide pine boards uh, to make a you know wide bench top, I think that's the way that I would do it. The other option is to take that eight quarter, um, that eight, those eight quarter boards, rip them into you know three to four inch wide strips, turn them on edge, and laminate the top and get yourself a a, a three to four inch thick bench top. Um, again, as you mentioned. Not really my preference. I not because it doesn't make for a good bench top. It certainly does. Um, it's just that if you don't have a table saw and you don't have a joiner and a planer, it becomes a lot of backbreaking work to do that all by hand. But it certainly can be done. And in in white pine, um, would certainly be a whole lot easier to do than it would be in oak or maple or something of that nature. So. Uh, up to you really how you want to do it, but I think if it were me and I had a wide eight-quarter board and a wide four-quarter board, I'd plane a face of each, glue them together face-to-face, -to -face, and make a thick board that way. So our last question for today comes from Joey, Joe Leonetti. Joe says, thank you for your show on sharpening. I do have one question that I don't see discussed that often. Rather than cambering a plane blade, sometimes is it more appropriate to just round off the corners to avoid plane tracks? How does one do this exactly? If I had to guess, I'd tip it to one corner and make 30 to 50 circular strokes on my diamond stone using my normal grit escalation process. Then I'd tip up the other corner and do the same. So yeah, absolutely. Um, what you're describing will certainly work. 
Um, what I tend to do when I just want to ease the corners is just put pressure over the corners um, because it, you don't need to completely round the entire corner off or put a radius on the corner. Um, you know, think in terms of like a like the edge of a playing card where you have this you know perfectly straight edge and then the corners are cut with a radius. Your plane blade doesn't need to look like that. What you really need is just to ease the corners, like if you're talking about a smoothing plane or something like that, or a triplane, um, and you really want to maintain that straight edge, but just ease the corners. If you use a, a honing guide, a, sa a side clamp style honing guide, when you're on the on your your stones, and you don't even need to do this on on all the grits, if you're just easing the corners back a little bit, I will just put finger pressure just on the very outside corner of the blade just to ease that corner off and it that is essentially going to lift the rest of the iron off of the stone um, and just hone the very corner you got to be careful doing this on water stones because you don't want to gouge them so make sure that the majority of your pressure is on the stroke on the, on the back stroke you don't want to push the edge into uh, push the corner forward into a, uh, a water stone that you might gouge um, but you really don't need a lot of, of sharpening to, to do this. Um, you know, and I guess you can call that a camber, but, um, you know, it, in my eyes, it's, it's so slight of a camber and you're not really creating this continuous round profile along the entire edge. You're really just easing those corners back and leaving the rest of the iron straight. And you're doing so without having to go to the process of actually like grinding away the corner like you're describing on, on a diamond stone. You just kind of put lots of pressure on that corner um, and especially with the side clamp honing guides, this works really well and really easily because the wheel is so narrow. When you put all your pressure just on the corner of the iron, the uh, the guide will tip over in that direction a little bit and the wheel will actually come up off the, off the stone and it will... Um, it will really just ride on the on the edge of the wheel and you'll really just be removing material from the corner and then you just repeat the process on the other side and it's it's super easy to do um, and you just do that every time you hone that's all you know you, you it's not like a, a once and done type of thing um, but on your your medium you know, like your middle stone and your finest stone um, and if you're talking about something like a smoothing plane that's really uh, really all you need to do because you're taking such a thin shaving. You really don't need to lower the corners much more um, than the center because your shavings are so thin. So that's it for our questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So this week's main topic is on starting a woodworking-related side business, and it's a topic that was inspired by a voicemail that I got from listener Scott Adams. So let's listen to Scott's question. Hey, Bob. i got another question for you. Uh, so I've been thinking about starting up just a really small scale saw sharpening service. Uh, it's a skill that I've, you know, sort of picked up while I've been doing unplugged woodworking. 
And, um, you know, I'd be willing to practice some if I was going to do it for other folks uh, just to get better. But I know you've done this, and I know you've kind of done it on and off. I was wondering if you would talk about um, about your experience with that and whether or not you feel like it's worth it to do small time just you know, for your, uh, your local hardware store or maybe post something on your Facebook or something. Uh, and just talk about your experiences of the whys or why nots, why you quit doing it, uh, and maybe some some troubles that you experienced uh, or other you know customer satisfaction issues or things like that. Uh, hated shipping, um, but I'm just curious to get your take on this, and I, I believe some of your other listeners might be as well. I don't so much view them as potential customers, but as peers who probably also have these same skills that I do and might also be able to offer a service locally. Uh, if you'd be willing to discuss it, I would really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Have a good day. So thanks for the question, Scott. And uh, it's a good one because I think uh, a lot of folks have thought about this um, and they, they wonder if it's something worthwhile. Um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my experience you know, with, with the saw sharpening business that I, uh, that I do. Uh, as well as my thoughts on on uh, you know other other types of potential businesses, or I, I don't want to talk about you know what types of businesses you might try to get into, but um, I think my experiences and and um, you know just my thoughts on on my personal business or, or side business um, might be useful you know in a lot of different businesses, not just saw sharpening. Um, you know, but it could be anything, whether it's, you know, selling your, your pieces or your furniture at craft shows, um, or, you know, or if you have small enough pieces to ship, selling them online, um, or offering, you know, some type of, of service like saw sharpening or, or otherwise for, uh, for, for woodworkers. So, um, the first thing I'll, I'll mention though, is that you need to think about what this business is going to be. Um, it's easy enough to get started doing this as a hobby. Um, and as a, you know, as a hobbyist, you're, you're not required to file any of the paperwork that you would have to file as an actual business and any income that you make doing this would only have to be claimed as part of your personal income taxes. You wouldn't have to have uh, you wouldn't have to create a business entity and you would not have to um, go through the, the whole process of filing, you know, quarterly business taxes and and things like that. Um, but you need to be careful on how much you grow um, in, in that sense, because you can get to a point and not that most side, you know, small side hustles um get this way, but they have the ability, the, the potential uh, in some cases to get this way where you would maybe need to create a separate business entity um, if you were bringing in enough money doing your side hustle. So I'm not an accountant um, and I don't want to pretend to be an accountant. So, you know, if, if you think that your business has the potential to grow to that level or you're just not sure, you may want to talk to an accountant about it. Um, but you do want to be careful in terms of the taxes because uh, um, 
you know, if, if you are making too much money or, you know, and it, and it becomes bigger than just a hobby in the government's eyes, you can be audited, you can be fined, et cetera, um, for not claiming, um, or, or setting up a business and trying to pass it off as a hobby. Um, but you know, for most of us, um, it can be just considered a hobby. Um, and any income that you make as part of that hobby can then just be um, considered more of your your as part of your personal income, and you don't need to create the whole separate business in order to to do that and and stay within the law. But definitely talk to an accountant first. Um, in terms of that, you know, with, with that out of the way, um, let's talk a little bit about the business itself. Now, I've been sharpening saws for other people. Um, and I, I don't want to say professionally because I'm not a professional. I don't do it full time. I don't depend on that saw sharpening income um, for my well-being or my day-to-day expenses. Um, I started sharpening saws probably ten, probably about twelve years ago, um, for other people because there was nobody else doing it. Um, there were very few people at the time that actually had were offering any kind of saw sharpening service. Um, I was sharpening saws for friends. I was sharpening my own saws. Um, and I, I felt that I was good enough at it that I can offer a service to people because a lot of people were looking to have this done and just couldn't find anybody to do it. Or the few people that did do it, um, again, as a hobby or side business, um, were so busy that they couldn't keep up, and some of them had waiting lists that were in excess of, of six months to a year long to get your saw sharpened. Um, so for me, I saw it as an opportunity um, at the time, and uh, and it was I was very successful with it. Um, you know, I I don't want to say that I, I you know made tens of thousands of dollars doing it because I certainly didn't. Um, I basically was able to make enough little extra money on the side that I can do that I was able to do things uh, like pay for my website hosting and domain fees um, pay for all the files that I had to buy um, in order to keep the business going um, and you know a little bit of extra money to to help my tool budget here and there um, and my my woodworking research budget in terms of of books and and uh, and just experimenting um, with different things and and the like Um, for me it was a good experience the primary reason that I got out of doing it after doing it for so long um, and it was it was always meant to just be a a temporary break from it um, just because I was so busy with the with the house with the cabin that we're building and everything Um, and I still really have not gotten back into it I have taken some saws um, once in a while from previous customers who've emailed me. Um, but for the most part, I haven't done it in a couple of years now because um, we just got busy building the cabin and uh, there were just too many other things going on. And uh, and I was getting too many saws and I was spending too much time sharpening saws because, you know, once you have a customer base and people are depending on you to turn these things around, um, you can't sit on them for months at a time. Um, I got to a point where because of the other priorities that I had with the cabin and my kids activities and things that my my backlog and my wait time was starting to get to be six to eight weeks and I'm not comfortable with that 
Um, there are others who are, are fine with that and they'll continue to take work with a six to eight week backlog. Um, the way I see it, you know, when you need a saw sharpened, it's because you need it sharpened now and you have a project that you're working on and you really want that saw to work on that project. So to me, it wasn't fair for me to say, um, you know, it's going to be eight weeks, it's going to be 10 weeks, it's going to be 12 weeks before I can get to your saw. So um, I felt it better just to to slow down and, and prioritize things and just stop taking um, taking on saws because I just didn't have the time to do it. And the other reason I stopped was um, because, at least in terms of the saw sharpening, it's getting harder and harder to find decent files. Um, and I try to keep my saw sharpening prices reasonable um, for the, the amount of work that goes into it, the, uh, the time, um, as well as the, the materials. And what I was finding was that with a lot of the the files that we're getting these days, there were times when I was going through an entire file, sometimes two files, to do a single saw. Um, and it was becoming um, economically challenging, let's say, to to sharpen saws and, and really get anything out of it because anything that I was making um, in the, the sharpening I was putting right back into just buying files because the files are, are such poor quality and just not lasting long enough to do a decent job of sharpening. So um, that was one of the other reasons I, I decided to kind of hang it up for a while because um, I just couldn't get decent files. Um, but in terms of experiences, you know, I enjoyed doing it What for the, the 12 years that I did it. And um, you know, would I, would I do it again? Absolutely. You know, it's certainly a good way to get yourself some extra, uh, extra money for the tool budget or the lumber budget. Um, if it's a service that, you know, people need, um, like I saw the saw sharpening service. Absolutely. You know, it, it's a win-win for everybody because I get the extra, you know, the extra money for lumber, the extra money for tools, that uh that I need that I maybe couldn't necessarily afford to take out of my household budget um and other folks who are buying tools and aren't really comfortable sharpening their saws were getting you know a good quality saw sharpening job better than they can do themselves for you know what they what they and I both considered a, a reasonable price so uh it was kind of a win-win for everybody the, the shipping aspect, I didn't see as too big of a deal. Most people didn't really complain about that because um, for the most part, it's tough to find somebody local who knows how to sharpen handsaws. Most local handsaw, most local sharpening services are familiar with circular saws, table saw blades, things of that nature, where um, they're, they're grinding the teeth, essentially. Um, nobody that I ever found locally was sharpening hand saws, at least not sharpening them properly. Um, if they had the equipment to do it, it was usually an automatic saw filer, like a, a Foley, which can do an okay job. Uh, the problem with those is if all you have is a saw filer and you don't have a retoothing machine, if the teeth are in really bad shape, the saw filer is either going to take forever to fix it or isn't really going to be capable of fixing it. And a lot of folks that were offering these sharpening services didn't have retoothers, they just had filers. They were putting a saw on a filer, making a pass down the teeth and calling it sharp. And they weren't correcting bad geometries, they weren't 
correcting misspaced teeth, and they really weren't making the teeth sharp, and they weren't making them so they could cut great. Um, so a lot of the services just, you know, they didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't know how a handsaw should really cut if it was sharpened well. Um, and very few people sharpen by hand, especially, you know, most local services that are cost that are charging you, you know, 10 bucks to sharpen a saw. Um, they're not sharpening by hand. They're putting them on some kind of machine or just grinding the teeth. Um, so if you have the skill to do it um, and you have the marketplace to do it, I say go for it. Um, I think you'll find that at least with saw sharpening, you're, you're going to be better off finding a customer base online. Um, I did some, some local work for uh, the local woodcraft in, uh, in Delaware, or, or I, I should say I was supposed to do some work for them. They had somebody that did some saw sharpening there. Um, and, uh, I, I could never find out, you know, that they weren't really clear to me whether or not the um, the people that were having their saws sharpened by this person were happy with them or not. But um, we had talked several times about me doing some saw sharpening for their local customers. Um, I had done some classes there and everybody had been very happy with the classes. So uh, the manager and I had talked a few times about him, you know, about me doing some local work for them, but uh, nothing really ever panned out with that. Um, so you may find that you're not going to get too many customers locally because honestly, you know, if there's anybody that does, that uses a handsaw around you or does handwork, it's probably not a lot of people. Um, so you're not going to find a lot of business, um, with sharpening handsaws, just looking locally. Um, you'll find the, the odd customer here and there, but you're not going to find too many. Um, even, in the online realm, you're not likely to find tons of customers. People aren't going to be beating down your door um, to have you sharpen their saws until you are, are able to build a reputation of, of doing a decent job at it. When I first started, um, you know, even though there was hardly anybody else doing it, um, I might get three or four customers a month if I was lucky. Um, you know, it, again, people weren't exactly beating down my door to have saws sharpened, but as I got more customers and as I got repeat customers and as, you know, I would see my name mentioned on, um, the woodworking message boards when people asked about saw sharpening, um, I started to get more and more customers and, and my work was getting more, you know, was getting better recognized the more saws that I did. Um, again, to the point where when I stopped doing it, I was, I was having to tell people that I was, you know, 10 to 12 weeks out with sharpening and I just wasn't happy with that, uh, myself and I didn't want to make people wait that long. So, um, but you know, it's going to take some time to build that customer base, uh, and that's with any business. So, um, but you know, I would say definitely go for it. Um, there are, are a couple things that I would recommend if you're going to start some type of side business related to woodworking. Um, first, make sure there's a need for it, right? Saw sharpening is a great one because there just aren't a lot of people doing it. Um, so there always did seem to be a need. And once you get your name out there, um, you can have a steady stream of customers where at least, you know, um, like I said, you can add to your tool budget or your lumber budget uh, every once in a while um, and, you know, make yourself a little bit of extra coin uh, during the month. Um, but keep in mind 
that the time you spend sharpening saws for other people is going to take away from the time that you get to spend uh, woodworking for yourself. Um, and that was something else that I was finding with all my other priorities was that once I had all these saw sharpening customers, they were paying me. So I really had to prioritize um, their jobs before I went and did any of my own woodworking or sharpened any of my own tools uh, or did anything for myself. So I think what you might find once you start a little side hustle like this is that you're going to have less time for the woodworking. So if you think that you know, you're know you going to make a bunch of extra money so you have a bunch of extra lumber or a bunch of extra tools so you can do more woodworking, um, you might be uh, shocked to find after you start doing this that because you have to focus on customer work, you have less time for the woodworking uh, that you want to do. So uh, certainly something to keep in mind there as well. Um, the other thing is, you know, in this day and age, you really need to come up with a way for, you know, find a way for people to find you. Um, when I first started sharpening saws, I started by putting it on my website. So it's going to be important to have a website. You know, Facebook is okay, but I'm sorry to say Facebook is kind of going away. It's, you know, years ago, five, five years ago, six years ago, Facebook was great. If you were a business, you could get your name out there. People looked on Facebook. Um, you know, people shared stuff on Facebook. Sorry to say Facebook is becoming the, um, the, the old man's social media now, or the, or the old man, the old woman's social media now. Um, the younger generations just aren't using it and the platform is kind of going away. And even a lot of the people who have been on it for years are kind of giving up on it and saying, uh, you know, I'm done with Facebook. Um, so I would say maybe get yourself on Facebook, but don't expect to get a lot from Facebook um, because it's just, it's not what it used to be. Um, definitely get yourself a website. Um, because that is the first place that people are going to look. If you know me as a as a hand tool woodworker, I know I'm in a really niche market. So local for me, especially where I live, is not going to be a place to go if I need tools, if I need some type of service um, as a hand tool woodworker. Um, so I'm going to go to the internet and I'm going to try to find something. And if you don't have a website, sorry to say, your name is not going to come up very high on that list. So you definitely want to build yourself some sort of website for something like that. Even if you're going to do craft shows or if you're going to do farmer's markets, um, it certainly would not hurt to get yourself a, a website. There are plenty of websites that you can build for free. Um, I would recommend you know, putting a little bit of money into the website if you can um, and actually getting your own domain and hosting your own website rather than using one of the, the publics, uh, you know, the, the free web builders, uh, because that way your, your domain name will be nice and clean. And, um, you won't, you know, it won't be something like, uh, you know, Joe saw sharpener at, you know, dot wordpress dot dot net, you know, whatever, you know, if you want to call yourself Joe saw sharpener, it could just be Joe saw sharpener.com and that's it. And you don't have this long convoluted URL. Um, so I would recommend if you're going to start a business, put the money into getting your own domain 
and getting your own web hosting. It's not that expensive. And once you build your, your customer base, you know, the, the work will pay for that. Um, and it's definitely worth the investment to get your name out there. Um, the other thing is when, when I started doing it, the, the woodworking message boards were a lot more active. So, you know, I had kept a link to my, um, to my website in my signature when I posted on the woodworking message boards, um, which I haven't done in years either. So, um, you know, that's something else you might want to consider participating on the woodworking message boards, even though they're not, most of them aren't quite as active as they used to be. Um, but, you know, show some of your work on the woodworking message boards um, and, you know, see if you can drum up some business that way, because there are still some of those woodworking message boards that are still somewhat active um, and you can still find some folks there looking for people to sharpen saws. Um, another place is, is going to be Instagram. And as much as, you know, the uh, the older folks among us really kind of dislike social media, um, unfortunately, it's kind of the way that online advertising is going. Um, if you want to reach people, you need to have a website. You need to be on, you know, platforms like Instagram um, just to be able to to show your work, to be active for people to find you um, and, and find the services that you're offering. So um, I would definitely recommend, you know, posting some of your work on Instagram because the, the factor of the matter is no matter how good, you know, you, you say you can sharpen a saw or no matter how good you say your cutting boards are or your, your knickknacks, um, people want to see it. So you need to be able to, to show the results, to show the projects, to show the product that you're selling. Um, if you want to, to gain that customer base. So definitely look into, um, you know, Instagram, look into, um, look into getting set up with a website. Um, and that's definitely going to be helpful for you. And then, you know, if you want to get your name into the local hardware store, definitely go down there and talk to them, bring some saws with you, show them what you can do. Um, you know, maybe they have a couple saws in the store themselves, um, that you you can sharpen for them that they can put on display to show your work. Um, you know, again, most people are not going to want to shell out money, even if it's just you know twenty dollars to have a saw sharpened. Um, they're not going to want to shell that out without seeing a finished product first and, and seeing what you're able to do. So it might be worthwhile for you to say you know pick up um, two pick up a couple old saws that are kind of rusty and nasty and take one of those saws and restore it, clean all the rust off it, make the saw blade nice, clean up the handle real nice and maybe uh, not necessarily refinish it, but clean it up and put some wax on it, make it look nice, polish up the saw nuts. Um, and of course, you know, sharpen the blade really well and, uh, and use it as kind of a before and after display so that, you know, folks who come in the hardware store can see what kind of service that you're, you're offering. Um, and, and definitely, you know, learn to get good at what are, at whatever it is that you're going to be doing. Um, because, you know, people, you know, most people can spot an amateur job and can spot an amateur trying to pass themselves off as, you know, someone with a lot of experience. So definitely get good at what you're doing 
um, before you're going to start offering uh, offering your services for sale. Um, and then, you know, just look around of other places that you can uh, can go. If, if you have local farmer's markets that offer booths to um, other local businesses or, or local merchants um, other than, you know, farmers and growers. Uh, I know my, my farmer's market here uh, where I am in Virginia, um, I can get a booth to, uh, to show my, my craft work. You know, if I wanted to sell some small woodworking pieces, um, you know, they, they would allow me to have, uh, to have a space and the farmer's market for that. So check your local farmer's market, check your flea markets. You can always set up a space there and, and sharpen saws at the flea market while you're sitting there and show people, you know, that this is what you do. Um, and you know, you could have people come there looking for old tools and then find you sitting there sharpening saws, right? So that you can, you can go ahead and they can buy an old saw from a tool vendor and then bring it over to you to have it sharpened. So, um, certainly not a, a bad, bad way to go. Um, and if you you know, if you're more thinking about building small craft items and things like that, look at some of the craft fairs around you, but look at the types of vendors they typically get there and the type of clientele, um, and, and understand what you're going to be able to get for whatever it is that you're selling. Um, because there's always going to be a market value for whatever good or service, um, that you're providing is right. Um, for me, I thought I priced myself fairly well for my saw sharpening. Um, it, I thought it was a good balance between the time I spent doing it and the value I, I was providing to my customer. And, you know, I've had people tell me that my prices are too low. I've had p- some people tell me that my prices were a little high. That tells me that I was probably pl- priced about right um, because I was providing, you know, value to the customer and I was getting fairly compensated for my time and the, the materials, AKA the files that I was wearing out and going through. So, um, it may take a little bit while, a little while to find your market value, depending on whether you're going to be online or local or whatever. But, um, you know, you may have to be a little bit flexible with what you charge for your goods or your services until you get established, until you, you kind of figure out where you are. So just, just kind of expect that. But uh, I say, you know, just to get back to your your question, Scott, definitely go for it. Give it a try. If you feel that your your skill and, and your ability to sharpen saws is up to snuff and good enough that, you know, you can offer that service to people, um, then definitely go for it. You know, the, the worst that could happen is that people don't want your service and, uh, you know, and, and you don't get any customers. But you know, so even in that case, you're probably only out, you know, a few bucks to set up the website. Um, but give it, give it some time. Um, you know, it's going to take a little while to build up that customer base. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun having these little side businesses here and there and, and coming up with new ideas and new products and new services to offer. So, uh, and some of them take off and, and some of them don't. So it's just, uh, you know, part of being a, a quasi entrepreneur and, and trying to figure these things out and, and having a little fun in the process. So give it a try uh, and, and have some fun with it. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. 
As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt036. In the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.